Amen. Let's pray. Father, we can hardly believe what you have planned and done for the likes of us. Even in the ways that we have sinned this week, this day, we would not have given a fraction of what you have given us to cover our sins. Lord, what can we do but worship you? What can we do but adore you? And hope that you will transform us from the inside out by the power of your grace. Lord, we pray now, would you let your word have that effect on us now as we meditate on the meaning of the incarnation. Press home to our hearts how we ought to respond to such magnificent love for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, tonight, because I am a dad of six children, I'm going to go home, and one of the things I'm going to do tonight not going to sound very spiritual. I'm going to watch the Muppet Christmas Carol with my kids. One of the songs in that Muppet musical is It Feels Like Christmas. Now, don't get the wrong idea. I do teach my children to distinguish their theology of the Incarnation from the Muppets. I tell them that that's not really a Christian song sentimental, but there is also something to it because it came from somewhere. Listen to just a few lines from It Feels Like Christmas as part of the Muppet Christmas Carol. It's in the singing of a street corner choir. Going home and getting warm by the fire, it's true wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. A cup of kindness that we share with another, a sweet reunion with a friend or a brother, in all the places you find love, it feels like Christmas. In the giving of a gift to another, a pair of mittens that was made by your mother. It's all the ways we show love that feel like Christmas. It's the season of the heart, a special time of caring, the ways of love made clear. The season of the Spirit, the message, if we hear it, is make it last all year. I got to tell you, when Michael Caine playing a repentant Scrooge is singing that to Kermit and Gonzo, it's a little moving to me. I'm not going to admit that I cry. It's a little moving. Even Muppets have retained a tiny remnant of what Christmas is. But of course, it's only a remnant. It's just a trace. I know, I know, it's not a Christian song. You're not going to find that one in the Trinity hymnal or in hymns of grace. It's more like Protestant liberalism painted by Thomas Kincaid and then brought to life by Jim Henson. So don't worry, we're not going to start singing it here at church in December. But that remnant of incarnational ethics came from somewhere. Where did it come from? What makes Christmas a season of giving, 
love, and lyrical praise. Where did this now secular ethic of Christmas come from? Well, the Bible says it actually came down from heaven in the person of Christ Himself. And it's the spirit and mindset that should permeate the local church where Christ is preached and loved. Paul says, Philippians 2, 1-4, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, in other words, if you Philippians are real Christians worthy of your soul, who have experienced Christ's love, and so have love for both Him and for each other, any of that is true among you, to any extent at all, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is how Paul wants us to act in the church. From one shared mind to love one another, to forget about self, and humbly count each other's needs more urgent than our own. To consider others as our superiors in grace to consider ourselves as low man on the totem pole. That should be the culture of every church. That should be the tenor of our relationships. That should be our shared mindset as church members. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says in verse 5. So how do we get that mind? that is not natural. Those things that he's telling you to do, the kind of person he's telling you and me to be, that doesn't come naturally to us. How do we get that mindset? Well, look there in Philippians 2.5. Because the good news is that if we're trusting in Christ, it's already ours in Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mind among yourselves. Humility, self-forgetfulness, lowly-mindedness in how you view yourself among other Christians. Prioritizing the interests of others above your own interests. Now that may seem like a tall order, but the good news is that this mind is already yours in Christ. Because it was Christ's mind 
before it was yours or mine. So then, what did this mind look like in Christ? What did Christ do because He had this mind? Well, this mind of Christ is what motivated the incarnation in the first place. Incarnation is a theological word for the Son of God becoming human flesh. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becomes human flesh. It is the enfleshment, the embodiment of the second person of the Trinity who had previously existed for eternity in spirit form only. It's God's eternal Son entering into physical humanness, taking on the form of a human body, incarnation. Not becoming a carnation flower. He's entering into a carnal human body, not Carnal in the sense of sinful, but carnal in the sense of physical, tangible. That action, the eternal, immaterial, spiritual, limitless Son of God, taking on human flesh and form, models for us the Christian mindset that should mark this church and every Christian. So tonight we want to learn and meditate on three lessons from the Incarnation teaches us three things, not only about what Jesus did for us, but also how we ought to live together in our churches. First, Christ laid down His rights for us. Christ laid down His rights for us. Jesus, Paul says, did not consider His own equality with His Father's divinity as something to be asserted for Himself no matter what. He didn't cling to it. He didn't clutch at it or grab it when his father said to him, go save my people by taking their place in their humanity under my wrath. Christ did not fight that and say, but Father, I'm your son. You don't have anybody like me. I'm one of a kind. What about my rights and privileges as your son? What happened to my status? What about my exemptions? Surely I am exempt from this indignity. What about my glory? Surely taking the place of sinful men and women is beneath my majesty and dignity. I mean, this would make me look bad. I do not like this idea. Besides, they don't deserve it. In fact, they've done everything not to deserve it. He said none of that. None of that was in his heart. He didn't try to grab on to his own status and glory to make sure he held on to it with a clenched fist. He didn't hold himself aloof from our human suffering. In terms of verse 3, Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He lived in divine form. Divine in His nature, essence, substance, glory, privileges, worthiness of worship, and deference and respect and awe and admiration from every other creature. He was invulnerable to suffering, transcendent, without a body, 
completely unlimited by space and time, unable to be made to suffer shame or loss. That is the Christ. That is the Christ. He took on a human flesh forever. But then what can it mean for the divine to empty himself in verse 7? When it says he emptied himself, it's not that God's Son divested himself of his divine nature. The Son of God did not take off his divinity. That's impossible. God could never stop being God. The divine is eternal by nature and by definition. It is not in divinity to quit being divine. But the Son did empty Himself of His divine privileges, His divine immunities. His divine rights, His exemptions. He did not fight for His rights instead of grasping at His position, instead of clinging to it, instead of fighting For all that was his by right, he let it all go. A song from Frozen, Let It Go, that's a song about letting go of other people's expectations, even parental expectations. That's ungodly. But here, Jesus is letting go of his rights as God's Son in order to obey the command of God his Father. No insisting on his rights. When you talk about a countercultural message today, don't insist on your rights. When's the last time you heard that counsel from anyone on either side of the aisle? Jesus' mind was not to keep all his privileges and exemptions to himself did not withhold himself from us in order to protect his reputation or keep his freedom. He didn't assert himself. Jesus didn't fight it. But Christian, this is the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. This is how we are now. This is the new nature God has given us in Christ. This is what we do. We lay down our rights too. This is how we should be like-minded. We should be of the same mind in laying down our rights for each other. Should I have to pick up after other people in the auditorium? Should I have to pick up after other people's kids in the auditorium? Should I have to pick up after the pastor's kids in the auditorium? Probably not. You probably shouldn't have to do that. But I'll lay down my rights because Jesus came here to clean up my own moral mess. Do I have to watch other people's snot-nosed kids in the children's ministry and risk getting sick myself? Maybe not. But I'll lay down my rights for the benefit of other parents here because Jesus laid aside his crown so that I could be called a child of God. and He bore all our diseases in his own body. all these hymns and songs my favorites? Maybe not. I'll lay down my preferences for others here since Jesus died for me so I could sing his praises for all eternity. Do people stay at my house a little too late when I have them over? (laughs) Maybe. But I'll lay down my rights for the last hours of my evening 
because Jesus has given me his very flesh and blood to eat and drink. Why should I have to be the one to get off work early and hang drywall on a two-by-four at a church? Well, maybe you don't have to be. But why would you not, since Jesus himself hung on a two-by-six and shed his blood for your sinful soul? I feel myself so inconvenienced by others as a Christian sometimes, don't you? Why do I have to be the one to do that? Why do I have to be the one? But it's only because I forget that it was the ultimate inconvenience for Jesus to leave his home in heaven to take on a body like mine just so he could have sinless blood to cover my sinful soul. This, this is the mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. The mind to give up our rights, our conveniences, our exemptions to serve Jesus and one another in love. It's not awkward. It's not weird. It's not self-righteous. It's humble. It's Christ-like. Jesus didn't fight it when his Father called him to lay down his rights for us, and so we shouldn't fight it either when Jesus calls us to lay down our rights for each other in his visible body. Second lesson from the Incarnation, Christ served us. Christ served us. Christ emptied himself of his privileges. He took on the form of a slave, not just a servant. He wasn't just like a table waiter in a tuxedo. There's honor in that. A slave, like an Israelite, slogging around half naked in the Egyptian mud, making bricks without straw. That kind of thing. Like a house slave, washing the feet of guests who walk dirty roads wearing sandals without socks. Like a farm slave, mucking stalls. Like a Roman man without freedom or citizenship who couldn't avoid crucifixion as if he were a criminal. When Jesus emptied himself, he emptied himself of his personal freedoms. Creator, master of mankind, in whose image man was created, himself became subject to his own sinful parents, Joseph and Mary. One who was rich beyond all splendor became subject to Roman taxes. The glorious one became subject to ridicule and shame. and He became a slave to the law. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He was born under the law as a covenant between him and God. A covenant of works. The one Adam broke. The one you and I broke. He was born as a slave to the expectation of perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to every precept of God's law. And he was born as a slave to the daunting expectation that he would endure the full penalty of the law for all of our disobedience to it, even though he never disobeyed any of it. He served us to the point of being a slave in our place under the law's command and curse. But again, this is the mind that's ours in Christ Jesus. Not that we can take each other's place before God like Jesus took ours. Nobody can do that. But we can voluntarily give up our personal freedoms to serve the cause of the gospel in each other's lives. We give up the freedom of what we want to do with physical and social energy, relationships, time, money, assets, hospitality. That servant-slave mentality, Christian, is already in you. 
because Christ is already in you, and you are already in Christ. Your new nature is designed and disposed, predisposed by Christ himself to image his own impulse to consider the needs of others more important than your own. That mentality comes complementary with the new nature you got when the Spirit of Jesus regenerated. It's already yours. You don't have to manufacture it. If you're a Christian, then that mentality is literally second nature to you. The Spirit of Christ Himself is in you. You don't have to live from the priorities and inclinations of your first nature anymore. Live from your second And third, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus would not compromise the mission his Father sent him to accomplish no matter what. He would not dilute the message his Father had sent him to preach. He served and preached and obeyed himself all the way to a Roman cross. That, that was God's will for him. He didn't miss God's perfect will because he died on a Roman cross. He hit the bullseye. That was how God wanted to glorify himself in Jesus. And it is what God wants Jesus, wanted Jesus to endure before he was exalted back to the Father's right hand with even greater glory than before he left. Jesus' suffering on the cross did not mean he did something wrong. It meant he did everything right, perfectly in fact. And then, God required it of Jesus' body for our souls. Now, take that perfect life that you just lived before me. That sinless blood. That praiseworthy, honorable, worship-deserving life and offer it up on the altar of the cross, body and blood, to satisfy my judicial anger over the sins of my people to provide atonement and forgiveness for their souls, that I might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is the mind that is ours in Christ. Obedient to the point of death is a lost category today even in the churches. It's as if we modern evangelicals have forgotten our roots in the cross of Christ. Jesus became obedient to his righteous heavenly Father to the extent of death on a Roman cross. Again, it's not that we're all obligated to pay Jesus back by suffering for him as he did for us. That's impossible. But look again at Paul's logic. We Christians are called to humility, to lowliness of mind in relation to each other, putting each other's interests ahead of our own, because that was the mind of Christ when he gave himself up for us in the incarnation and on the cross. This dying to self, this crucifying of our fleshly desires and priorities, this is what it means to display our repentance. Not only our repentance from sin, but our repentance from self. Every day, in the nitty-gritty. If you're not a Christian, if you don't have this mentality, you don't have it because it was Christ's, and you only get it in him. 
We only share this mentality as we share in Christ himself by a faith that repents. But if you're a Christian, then there's something about this self-denial, this obedience even to death, that comes naturally to you and that sounds right and good, even attractive and admirable. You crucify the flesh with its appetites and desires. You forsake worldliness. You embrace godliness. And you do so not just for yourself, but for others here in this church because they are members of Christ's visible body. Sacrifice for them is to sacrifice for this Christ. So, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the spirit of Christmas. That is the spirit of Christ and Christianity. That is the way of love made clear. I wonder, is that what Christmas feels like to you? Let's pray together. Father, we do not know what to say to all these things. Even we as Christians have failed miserably in doing this and taking this mentality on ourselves, but we want to grow in it. So we pray, make us as Christians marked by this humility, lowliness of mind, this considering of others better and more important than ourselves, considering their interests more important than our own. May we die to ourselves and live to Christ for the good of others. For Jesus' sake.